As I mentioned before, we were away last weekend attending a family wedding in Dayton, Ohio. It's quite a trek to get to Dayton by car. We had a wonderful time though and, um, and danced a lot at the wedding. Um, we did sit down from time to time, but then another good song came on, and so then, and so-and-so was out there, look at what they're doing, or whatever, and before we knew it, we had literally been on the dance floor over three hours. We had postponed our leaving of the party because another good song came on, or somebody was waiting to do some particular dance, first by half an hour, then by another 20 minutes, and then eventually we headed out, and we're on our way through downtown Dayton around 11 p.m., Dayton is asleep at that time. So whenever something is moving, you see it. And we came to a place where we were getting ready to go get on the highway and there was a person standing beside the road with a cardboard sign looking for help at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. And I thought to myself, I thought, do I have cash in my wallet? If I look at my wallet, if I get down into my purse and I pull it out, will this individual see me looking and then hang close to the car at this hour to see if maybe I have some sort of donation to give? This was the story that came to my mind when I heard, I read today's gospel. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. I confess I did not look down into my purse to see if I had any money. But I reprimanded myself for forgetting that there are people in want. That I was unprepared in a convenient way to respond to the need that was evident there. This is a thought that occurs to me with some frequency. When I was in the search, when I was a part of the um, walkabouts that week for Bishop, I was in New Haven and was going from getting my coffee back to the hotel and I was in just regular clothing and I passed someone who was in need asking for a handout, and I thought to myself, oh, thank goodness I have on normal clothes. What if I had on my collar? What if I had on a purple shirt? And I literally thought to myself, if I'm elected bishop, I need a discretionary account of cash to hand out on the street. I want to be prepared for the fact that there are people in need. This is what sticks out to us in our gospel lesson for today. Even the religious people didn't stop. Ugh. And we tell this story again and again to make the point of how important it is to stop when we see someone in need. A friend of mine told me a story that makes this point also. He told me about some seminarians at Princeton who were given the charge to preach on this particular gospel text, and they had to prepare the sermon in short order. They had about an hour and a half between their assignment and when they were to preach, an exercise that's given to us so that we can put something together on the fly. An hour and a half is kind of on the fly. And they were to walk to the chapel where they would deliver their sermon on this gospel passage, and it was intentional that someone was set up on their path who was in need. And as my friend told me this story, nobody stopped, he said. Can you believe it? All these seminarians were hastily moving to give their sermon on this very passage, and none of them stopped to help the person in need. Indeed. How is it that we are prepared for the needs of this world? I wonder if the person 
the Samaritan in this gospel story, the one that gives this story its name, which gets tossed around in our society, the Good Samaritan we refer to. I wonder if he was just prepared, happened to have wine and oil, you know, makeshift medicines for an emergency situation. Perhaps the religious leaders didn't have it. Perhaps they forgot to prepare for someone in need. Perhaps they were traveling lightly and just didn't think that they might encounter someone who was in need. I believe that it's out of our lack of preparedness, the lack of preparedness that mercy might be needed in some situation that makes us unable to love our neighbor. It prevents us from loving our neighbor. We haven't thought ahead to what does loving our neighbor look like as we see the needs of this world. And that's the question that comes to us this morning. How are you, how am I, how are we prepared to show the mercy of God? How are we preparing to extend mercy to the one that we see in need? How are we mindful of the needs of others? I'll admit that when Sarah and I were talking before this sermon and she mentioned that the the prison ministry may not happen, I said, can you just give the announcement anyway in case we need to prepare? Because if it does happen, we don't have time to prepare. And so I'm grateful, Sarah, for you sharing that story. Our presiding bishop spoke at the opening of our general convention on Thursday morning or Friday morning. And in his opening homily, he spoke about how we prepare to do the needs, to do the work of the kingdom in the world. It's very simple, he says. It's through spiritual practices. These are so accessible to us to pray, to worship, to give. They're right here in our routine of our lives, and it's in doing those that we find ourselves becoming prepared for what God needs us to do in service in his kingdom. And I love the emphasis of this in the Old Testament lesson today from Deuteronomy, where the Deuteronomical writer says, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. You don't even have to go all the way out there to find it. This was good news to the Israelite people when it was spoken. This portion of Deuteronomy was written somewhere around 600 before the Common Era. It follows a period in which the established kingdom of Israel, which was built in the land given to them as the promise after captivity in Egypt, that land had been divided and then conquered by foreign rule. What they once had known as a great kingdom under King David's rule and then his son Solomon who followed him was now a memory. And as God's chosen people, they found themselves in exile from their promised land under occupational rule. And so in this scripture passage today, we hear the good news that look, you don't even have to go out to find this instruction. It's in your heart and in your mouth. It's right here. The availability and the accessibility of God's goodness to us is something that um, comes to my mind frequently and came to my mind when I heard the heartbreaking news um, about a week ago about an avalanche in Punta Roca Glacier near Canazea, Italy. Maybe you heard about this. Some hikers were out hiking and an avalanche happened. At least seven people died and there were an estimated 13 hikers unaccounted for. Climbing a glacier is quite a commitment. It takes a lot of planning 
It's uncertain territory. It has a level of risk. But who could have foreseen the ice coming broken underneath and sliding down? I know that this is a fun thing to hike a glacier. Michael and I and Gabe did it several years ago. And it's amazing to be on ice that's so old, 30,000 years old, at least. And you can hear the water running underneath it. And you look down there and you say, oh my goodness, that is certain death. It's a humbling experience to touch rocks that are so ancient. But I wondered what drove these people to hike that glacier? Was it just for fun? But what if it had been for something more? Would they have done it if, it was, if they found in it the promise of how to remove Russian aggression and bring peace to Ukraine? Would they have hiked this if, they, if it would promise that they could figure out how to restore women's rights to bodily autonomy in the United States? Would they have gone through the effort if they were hopeful that it could eliminate gun violence and make a law that everyone could get behind for the sake of our shared humanity? Would they have gone through all that effort if it would lead to them finding the right words to say, which would remind people that the planet is warming and we have to decide how to survive on it, changing our way of life so that our lives can continue? Would anybody have gone through it if there was that promise? I'm quiet because maybe that question answer comes to you. Perhaps, though, people went on that glacier to escape from the troubles of this world, to put one foot in front of the other on land that is at least 30,000 years old, where they have to focus all their attention and they can't let their minds run and their bodies worry with the worries that are around us. We need a break from the concerns. We need a place to escape to. And so that brings me to the question of how our escaping the problems of this world creates in us a capacity for something new. How is it that in our ways to alleviate some of the burden, we actually find a new way? For none of us can climb a glacier indefinitely. The spiritual practices that our presiding bishop speaks of are such ways to escape and to be restored and to find a new way. You indeed recognize that by coming into this worship space today, a place where perhaps you've come many times, the place perhaps that this is your first time. And in it you said, oh, it's going to feel good in there. It's going to smell good in there. We're going to hear words that are really old, 600 before the common era, or in the early part of this millennia. We said, oh, we're going to pray prayers that people have prayed over and over and over again. I'm going to sit in a pew in a common seat that other people have sat in. This sanctuary is over 100 years old. People have been worshiping here for in this particular building for longer than 100 years, but in this space for almost 300 years. So you recognize how necessary it is to escape and how in that escaping there's a new capacity to address the needs of the world. That's what the spiritual disciplines do for us. This service time is right in the middle of the morning, but hopefully it provides for you a Sabbath morning, a resignation or a release of a functioning time, resting in to rest, coming to worship. You can't do too much before. You can't do too much after. 
So maybe the job is to rest. That's what Sabbath is about. Praying certain times of the day, as we mark time during the day, reciting scripture, it becomes a part of our very being. Participating in this sacred meal, using words that the church has handed down for centuries, taken from scripture, united into a moment that transcends time and space, to be fed by the one who gave himself for us. We escape and we are renewed simultaneously. Pilgrimage is another spiritual practice, and you kind of made one here this morning, although it didn't cost you much or take you long. But you came to this place when you could have had time somewhere else. We talk about the seasons of the church here, that we're in the season of Pentecost. And yeah, does that mean much? Well, it does when you go deeper into it. And it frees us from thinking of ourselves specifically in relationship to the calendar and the hours that tick by. Scripture is another form of spiritual practice, learning and reading these things over and again until they become a part of us just through mere familiarity. And then they begin to work on us. And so as we enter these ancient texts, we escape the news of the morning or the day or the week and find God speaking to us in it. Even tithing as a spiritual practice helps us disconnect from the monotony or just the drive of money. Giving to the church is a belief that the church can make a difference in the world. Who else is telling the story of the Good Samaritan? It's the church that tells this story. It's the church that reflects on this story. It's the church that seeks to live this story. And so it is that we give to the work of the church, not knowing yet how the church might respond, but knowing that the church desires to respond faithfully. And that shapes the rest of our lives. I was telling Millicent yesterday, I probably should buy some curtains. There are a few empty windows, and now that we have sidewalk in places we didn't have it before, I probably should spend some money on curtains. But the only place I can take it from is giving. And that just doesn't seem like the right spot. This is what happens to us when we get into the routine of financial giving to the work of the kingdom. When we go deeper, that's a way to escape. And when we go deeper, we start to see the mercy of God in our lives, and we start to see that God provides for us in all things, and it begins to silent or at least lessen the anxiety of the world. It gives us a way to respond to the anxieties of this world. Our circumstances right now require that we love our neighbor. And we find ourselves wondering, who is our neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. As I mentioned, our church gathered for general convention, something it does every three years, where all representation from every diocese shows up in the same place to conduct legislation that affects all of us. And the legislation is created by the church in response to particular needs that we've noticed over the course of time, since the last one, perhaps. This is where we made the decision to bless same-sex unions. This is where we may are considering how we add another covenant to our baptismal covenant that recognizes um, creation. This is where we find our language about becoming beloved community and what that means for us as an Episcopal church. So it's holy work, even though it's all about all in favor, aye, any against, no. So on this opening of this 80th convention, 
It just so happened that there was um, a resolution on gun violence, something that the church has sought to speak up about. And it came to pass that a deadly shooting happened just a couple of blocks from the convention center the day before. So the bishops decided, as the bishops against gun violence, to walk down to that corner. What had happened, you see, is that there was a squeegee worker, something that Baltimore has a problem with. People don't want to go into the city because people show up at the stoplight to squeegee their window, hoping for a donation. This has been an ongoing issue in the city of Baltimore. And on this particular corner, a squeegee worker went to work, and the guy didn't want it. And very disturbingly, got out of the car with a baseball bat and went toward the young person who happened to have a gun and killed him. This is the neighbor in need. How do we address that? There's so much complicated in that suffering, so many pieces. How do we address that? How are we prepared to show mercy? How are we prepared to respond to the moment at hand that we did not expect? We did not expect this. This is not how this day was supposed to go. For any of them, for any of the people in the cars beside all of this, for any of the other squeegee workers who were standing around, the, the collateral damage of such a moment is immense. And God calls us into that. As the church, we can rely upon one another. We come together in this week in, week out, same order, hymns, words, sacrament, over and again because it shapes us. And we're not the only people who are being shaped by it. The larger church is. We join with the strength of our diocese, which joins with the strength of our national church. And so these decisions that are made, we lean into because the work is so hard. But we know that as the church, we're called to go deeper, so we're prepared to respond to the needs of the world. If only it were a flesh wound that could be addressed by oil and wine and some bandages. But that's not the circumstances we find ourselves in. And so our job is to become prepared. Our job is to go deep into the spiritual practices that have been handed down to us from generation to generation that are right here. They're in our mouth and in our heart. We don't even have to go far away to do it. You can pray in your pajamas before you've brushed your teeth. You don't even have to commute for that. No one has to see you. How much more close can that be? 15 minutes is a prayer time. I'm going to share with you a little later how you can access this kind of thing because it's when we do that it becomes, begins to shape us. On a family text thread yesterday, I was really blessed by one of my family members who said, love, putting love into the world might not change the love e, but it changes the lover. And it prepares the lover to put love into the world so that something can be done with it. That's what we're called to do. You may have noticed that our gospel opens with this lawyer ready to test Jesus. And what happens as soon as he asks this question? 
it flips. Jesus asks him, what does it say in the law? What do you see there? Now who's being tested? The man gives the answer, and it is the right one. How does he know it? Because he has dedicated himself to studying it. And when Jesus tells the story and asks him the second test question, who was the neighbor? He gives the right answer then too. Why? Because he's dedicated himself to knowing what God's about. The passages of scripture that we've read this morning are as relevant now as they've ever been. And they're all available to us. Thank God we have this routine of coming together to be fed in ways that we didn't even know that we needed. And even though it takes effort on our parts to get here and to participate, it is in the giving that we receive. It sustains us. And we receive from one another's contributions. The altar guild who came early to set things up. The acolyte who was here got up early in time to carry the cross so that we could focus our attention on it, coming into worship, going out of worship, going forward for the gospel. The ushers that came early to open the windows who will also assist you in coming forward for communion. The reader, the prayers, the people leader. These people all have given in a way that we're all benefiting from. And so we come to do our parts, and I heard you singing out, and it was really great, whether it be on the psalm or the hymn. And it sounds better because we're here together. I dare say you wouldn't have sung this stuff at home alone. What a miracle of God that it's in our giving that we receive what we need. It's in our coming together that we're sustained. It's right there, God says. It's on your lips and in your heart. To conclude this sermon, I want us to pray together the general thanksgiving, which is on page 101 in the Book of Common Prayer. Page 101. Like I said, I'm going to share with you a little later how to do morning prayer in a way that works with your rhythm. Because it was in, this, past, in that pra this practice, I'll share with you later, that I came to hear this prayer prayed over and over again. Now, when I did morning prayer on my own, I didn't usually do this one. I usually did the prayer of St. Chrysostom because it was shorter. Can anyone relate to that? Are you out there? <laughs> so, um, but the, the participant, what I was participating in always did this lengthy general thanksgiving. So I did that general thanksgiving, the long one, because that's what they were doing. And I came to find the words so beautiful. And through its repetition over and over again, I, caught, I got, began to hear the phrases. And I began to memorize it just through hearing it over and over again. And then I found the one phrase that tripped me up. And I took a few minutes to just get through that part in my memorization. And now this prayer literally comes to me when I feel thankful. Let us pray together the prayer of general thanksgiving on page 101. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, 
and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. <laughs>